0: Like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Told you it was a long section, 24 verses, and we're going to try to cover the first 11 today by looking at the people who invited Jesus to uh, this meal and his uh, healing and then his teaching. Sunday after church table fellowship is something that has been going on probably since the day of Pentecost. You gather together for worship and then you go together to eat. Right? We enjoy these type of things. We, we learn that they serve nice soup up here at this church restaurant or you invite someone over to your home for a pot roast or you go to mcdonald's yeah but you have some fellowship after the service of all the times that that has been something that we have been invited to two times rise to the top for me one was the time we're invited and the meal was a bowl of pepperoni Did you, the meal was a bowl of pepperoni that was that was the meal and uh, we stopped at mcdonald's afterwards the second one was when, <clears throat> I don't know if we were just, if we were candidating at a church or we had just recently come to the church, but the, the church was trying to get to know me and they had me scheduled, Lee and I scheduled to go to different houses there. And we went to this one house and after the meal, the, this was okay, but this is why I remember it, the, the husband said, well, it's the men's turn to do the dishes today. So I got to go and wash their dishes. I, it was a very, I just that rises to the top for me. Not that I felt like I was above that, but I've never been asked to do someone else's dishes before, and it was a weird thing. That's the context of the story this morning, that it's, it's Sabbath, right? So it's Saturday, but, but it's a very similar type thing. The, the rabbi is invited over for a meal at the house of this ruler of the Pharisees. That's the only information that it gives us. It doesn't tell us exactly how high up in the Pharisees he was, but he was a well-esteemed member of that group. And there were other people at the home. We see that in verse number seven. He told a parable to the others who were invited. There's a man who's sick who's invited. So there, there's quite a crowd at this party, and it, it, it made me think that there is, there's this moment in time where these people are gathered, and their response is going to, is going to really matter. And uh, if you were watching uh, the State of the Union address, you saw the president point out some people who had liberated uh, a, a Jewish uh, Holocaust prisoner, a prisoner of war there. And, and just it was a very emotional moment there when the, when the 80, 90-year-old men stood up and w- were thanked for their service. And uh, then you start kind of investigating more, and you just think of D-Day and these men who are <coughs> gathered together, and they, they walk out of those boats, and they basically save civilization, Men who are gathered together at a moment in time. I, I also, last summer when Max was um, working in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, we went to uh, Boston and visited him. And, and we think of the Minute Men who, at a moment in time, rose up and, and did something and altered the course of history. And it just, there's, there's people gathered together at certain points of history and they may not realize how momentous that moment is. And here are people at a, what it seems to be a mundane activity a Sabbath meal, and it really is the moment of their lives. And their response will not just alter time and history, but their response to Jesus is going to alter their own eternity. And so then we have us, same thing, gathered together, group of 30, 35 people or whatever it is here, gathered together, hearing from God, show us Christ, going through another you know, just another Sunday, we sang the songs, we heard the prayer, now we're going to hear the message, then we're going to have our meal, and, and to not let that slip past, but to think, what is God calling us at this moment of time, how is he calling us to respond? So that's how I'm thinking and praying for you about that. that the, this is not ordinary, this is extraordinary. We are, gather, we are not gathering for a lecture or a meeting, but this is the honoring of God and then the hearing from his word. And so what we want to do today is hear from him and respond to his prompting. The people who invited Jesus to his home or the person who invited Jesus to his home, I believe, uh, had sinister motives. And so I want to point out three things. There's a three, three points to our message and there's going to be three things that we're going to identify regarding the people. I think there's more than just the, fair, the one Pharisee who is the sinister man at this party. But I think the others, in verse number 7, when he tells this parable to others, choosing place of honor. So we're going to lump these different people who are nameless, but they have invited Jesus over for Sabbath meal, have been prepared the night before, so they didn't break the Sabbath. The Pharisees were very concerned about this, as we're going to see in the passage. But they made three very unwise decisions in this passage. Three very unwise decisions. And, and we must avoid them. And Jesus, through his teaching and healing, is going to express his choice. Wrong choice number one. So here's the outline. Wrong choice number one. They chose trapping over teaching. They chose trapping over teaching. Wrong choice number two will be they chose principle over people. And wrong choice number three is they chose honor over humility. Okay, but we'll start with number one. They chose trapping over teaching. So after the Sabbath, Jesus must have either been teaching or visiting in the synagogue, and afterwards he was invited over, and as I said, I believe there is a sinister motive for this invitation, and there's reasons behind that. This is not just a friendly gathering, hey, Jesus, come on over. This is a trap that is being set. Jesus is the prey, and there is bait that is set for the prey. What do you imagine the bait is that the Pharisees have used to ensnare Jesus. What is the bait that they have used? The sick guy. The sick guy is the bait. The hard and stubborn, rebellious heart of these individuals are in view here. I mean, how many healings had they already witnessed? They already had witnessed bent over Betty being straightened on the Sabbath, and now they're going to see dropsy Dan healed as well. And they are, they are so hardened to it that you, you would think that the hammering of this evidence would eventually break the hard hearts of these people. They had heard Jesus' teaching over and over again. Last time he healed on the Sabbath, he, he gave some teaching about the, the need for mercy on the Sabbath. They, they totally missed that. And in fact, what I think they're doing, and we'll talk about this in a second, is they're bringing the dropsy man in as a means to lure Jesus Almost like they're going to the dropsy man, and we'll talk about this. I'm getting ahead of myself saying, hey, you want a chance to meet Jesus? We'll invite him to the home after supper, after Sabbath, and you come, and you'll see Jesus. And this guy may be getting his hopes up. Sinister. Sinister. They aren't really interested in what Jesus has to say, only to trap him and trick him into sinning, their mind sinning, by violating their traditions, tempting him to sin, so then they would feel superior because the minute Jesus breaks our Sabbath regulations, and I emphasize our Sabbath regulations, not what Scripture teaches, then they can set him up to fail and they will be superior. Because I'm sure they had, they had a hatred of Jesus, number one, for his following and for what would be perceived as him being this, this ultimate goody-goody, the people like him and his teaching, and they are usurping their power. The Pharisees, they, they wanted this power and authority over the people, and this is why they placed all of their man-made standards on them, so they would be indebted to them as leaders. This is a setup, and it makes me wonder, and I'll explain why I think further it's a setup in a minute, but it makes me wonder, what were they thinking during the Sabbath teaching? Like, were they even listening to the expression, whether it be Jesus or some other rabbi teaching in the synagogue that day, or are they just wheels turning in their mind they can't wait to get home because they got this set up with dropsy man and jesus gonna come and we're gonna get him and they're not even listening to the word of god being taught and i wonder if that might be the case for some today in verse 1 of chapter 14 here's one of the reasons we think it's a set i personally think it's a setup because it says they were watching him carefully that word means they are lurking and watching they're watching him in a lurking fashion. They have an eye on him, waiting to see him fail. And in fact, if you flip back maybe just one page in your Bible, you can see that this is their, this is their um, manner of life uh, since Luke 11, verse number 54 Luke 11, 53, as he went away, Jesus is going away. The scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. See, their motives are not, let's bring Rabbi Jesus over and learn more. Their motive is to lurk and to trap him, to catch him. It seems impossible with all of this evidence that they still could not or would not respond to Christ. As I said, their hard and stubborn, rebellious heart is in view, and it is something that the Bible terms as depravity. The word depravity simply means to be completely and totally perverted in our nature. Um, Romans 3, 10 to 18, if you wanted to jot those verses down, is a place where uh, total depravity is uh, described. It says in verse 10, no one is righteous, not even one. There are none who seek after God. They have all gone out of the way. They are together become worthless. And then it starts going over all of the different body parts that have been perverted by sin. Their lips are quick to speak lies. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their hands, all of these things are mentioned. Their throats are an open grave, etc. You're a little familiar with that passage, I think. If not, read it uh, this afternoon. But the description of depravity is that it is true of all people, And it is true of all of the person. In other words, all of us in here are depraved. Apart from Christ, we are depraved. And then all of our being is affected. Our hands, our motives, our thoughts, our actions, our speech. Everything is corrupt. Everything has been tainted. Uh, It's the quaint saying that says, whatever is in the well will come out in the bucket. And because the nature is wicked and perverted and corrupt, the actions cannot be good. The actions and so the depravity of man leads to some terrible consequences First of all, it means we are dead in our trespasses and sins Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 says that we are spiritually dead I've explained this to you several times, but it's been a while if a person is physically dead They don't care how hot the room is. They don't feel hunger or pain They cannot respond to anything physical. They're not saying, I can't hear what he's saying or that's too loud or something. They have no no notion of anything that is happening around them physically. They are dead. I mentioned a minute ago the D-Day men who are paratrooping uh, down into into Normandy and and they're fully cognizant of all their surroundings at, at the moment right there. They're like, you know, I'm hot, I'm high, I'm falling, this is scary. They're shot, they're dead, and all of those things cease to, to matter to them. They can't relate to anything physical anymore. They ha- we can understand that. So to be spiritually dead because our depravity means we do not and cannot respond to any spiritual truth, cannot. When, when songs are sung or the word is read or scripture truth is taught, There can be no response to that. When a person says, will you repent and trust in Christ, a depraved person cannot respond. So if you're thinking logically with me, I already said all men, all mankind is depraved. We are totally and completely perverted, meaning we are dead in our sins, so we cannot respond when a person says, would you like to be saved? then how is anyone saved? Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says that the carnal mind is incapable of pleasing God. So that most people, when pressed about their relationship with God, lean back on their good works. But as I just said, the depraved mind and the depraved nature cannot bring forth any good works, so it is impossible to please God, and we are also incapable of saving ourselves. We are spiritually dead let me illustrate it to you this way because well let's ask the question first and then we'll illustrate it. so when the, when we're all depraved and when someone says will you be saved who can respond nobody in theory nobody can because we're spiritually dead did you hear the story this week about the couple in colorado who were out camping and they got stuck in the snow maybe you didn't hear this they got stuck in the snow five days they're in their jeep they're they're uh they're uh Drinking melted snow, they're rationing their camping supply. It's five days, out in the middle of nowhere. And so some people uh, get a search party together, they get on some snowmobiles, and they, you know, they're about to turn back, and someone spots the Jeep. Okay? And the people in the Jeep are still alive. So they honk on their horn, they hop out. They are physically alive, they can see someone coming to deliver them. If they were dead, the snowmobile rescuers could be pounding on the windows. Hey, anybody in there? They're physically dead. They have no ability to respond. So that when Christ comes to the depraved person and says, Will you respond? The depraved person can't. Spiritually dead. The spiritually dead person needs an outside force to awaken him or her before they can respond and that's what god calls being born again or regenerated so what god does in his grace and mercy see salvation is all of god psalm uh 3 8 or psalm 2 9 and jonah 2 8 jonah 2 9 that the, i get the, the lexic there but they, they're those two verses talk about salvation being a, all of god it is all of god not of works lest any man should boast So when when the the preacher or the evangelist or the neighbor says will you come to Christ the spiritually dead person can't respond until the Lord regenerates that person makes them alive spiritually and then they can respond to the truth and they will respond to the truth because they've been awakened. It's all God's doing. No one could say "Oh, I responded to the Lord. You only responded to the Lord because the Lord himself awakened you or regenerated you Now. Does not that make man blameless because he can't respond? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says man is still responsible, even in their deadness, in their sins, to respond to Christ. It is the mystery of the gospel. God must work in order to be saved, yet we are still responsible. And some would rather argue than admit their sin. Some would rather debate the Lord, like our Pharisees here, rather than depend on him for salvation. I don't know about you. Have you ever, will you ever respond to Christ? Will you repent and trust Christ alone for your salvation? We talk about the gospel every week when we study Luke. Or continue to just deceive yourself or argue yourself into the kingdom or pretend like you're a believer. They chose trapping over teaching. Second thing, they chose principle over people. They chose principle over people. Again, here's the opportunity f- of a lifetime for them to have Jesus at an after meal uh, after teaching meal, and yet they ignore all that He has to say and they've ignored all that He has to say because of their depraved hearts they can't respond now we 're not talking about when we say they chose principle over people I 'm not talking about them choosing uh, choosing God's laws or or pleasing people. We understand that uh, What Peter and John said is still true. We must obey God rather than men. But we're not talking about God's principles. We're talking about them choosing their own man-made traditions and putting them up and above the needs of people and, in fact, making them follow these things which actually hinders them and keeps them from Christ. And worse yet, the Pharisees really are using this man with the dropsy. They're just abusing this person who is probably near death. I can imagine them having this plan concocted and they, they go to this man with the dropsy and invite him to come see Jesus and get his hopes up when all they really want is for Jesus to be tempted. Think about this. They're tempting Jesus to heal a person. It's, it's like, and, and they, they are so foolish, futile in their minds, darkened in their thinking, That they're not even comprehending what they're thinking. We're tempting Jesus to heal a man of a fatal disease. And when he heals that guy, then we'll have him. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. When he heals them, it should be the evidence to them that only God can do something like this. We ought to listen to his teaching. But they're so hardened, then they want to use this guy and get his hopes up instead of caring for his needs and helping him. We sometimes do that we we put and I'm not talking about the word of God. I'm talking about Other man-made traditions or man-made principles that hinder people from coming to the word of God I was trying to think of ways that we do this Um, I can't think of a way that that's happened here, but in the past we used to bring in uh, In a ministry we were in we used to bring in all kinds of kids from the community And after wednesday night teaching we played dodgeball in the basement of the church and uh we threw a ball right through the wall, hole right in the drywall. I mean, we have like 50 kids from the community coming in. Seems like this would be a wonderful thing. They hear the gospel, they play games after, and there was a person who just couldn't stand that we were, you know. I mean, we weren't intentionally damaging things. I mean, look at our carpet. We play the games in here and we bring all these kids in here. Is it more important to, to hold to man-made regulations of, of that type of, you know, obviously there's certain things that we're not going to allow, but... Can we, can we allow certain things for the greater good of helping people, right? Can we allow certain things and, and let our own man-made traditions kind of slip away or fall away so that people can come to Christ and meet Christ? This is what the hypocrites refused to do. In fact, they actually use this guy. Let's talk about this man with the dropsy. What is this? This is, dropsy is really a symptom rather than a disease. Dropsy is the swelling of the limbs uh, and of the tissue, like, like kind of like the bulging of skin and it, because water is being retained. And it's the sign that some other disease is affecting the body. Most likely like liver disease or some sort of organ failure or cancer. Some sort of, some sort of disease which caused a person to retain water and bloat and, and skin just starts to, uh, and tissue starts to expand because you have all this excess fluid. The first hospital visit I ever made uh, with Pastor Hoyt at First Baptist of Romeo was to Mrs. Sherry Campbell who had cancer or leukemia or something. We walked in and I'd never been to hospitals and she was huge. She had, she had same kind of similar problem. I don't, I, I don't know if that's the exact same thing as what's being talked about here, but we understand what that means. So the dropsy is a symptom. This guy, in other words, is fatal. This, this is not a this is not a minor thing, even bent over, the bent over lady, was, it was not a fatal situation, obviously a very difficult and troubling thing, but this guy probably is near death. He may be struggling with cancer or some sort of organ failure, fatal disease, and the Pharisees are using him to trap Jesus. Now look in the passage here, there, behold, um, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Another reason I think this is a trap is why would this guy be there? Why would this guy be there? A ruler of the Pharisees isn't gonna, is going to invite bloated Dropsy Dan to the party? No, he's only doing it to bring Dropsy Dan and Jesus together so they can trap him. And Jesus turns to this guy, and look at verse number 3. A word should jump out to you here. In verse 2 it says, Behold, there was a man before him who had Dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What word jumps out to you there as being a surprise word in the verse? Talk to me. It doesn't matter if you get the wrong one. Nope. There's a lot. What? Yeah, responded. Why is that that weird? What's he responding to? Has anybody said anything to him? He's responding to well, it says, Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded. Here's, here's what's being described here. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Jesus isn't fooled here. Jesus knows this is a trap. He's responding to the, to the lawyers and the Pharisees. He's not responding to the dropsy man. He's responding to them. You know what he's responding to? Their heart, their motives, their intention. Remember John chapter 2, the very end, John 2, I think it's 25, it says Jesus did not have anybody... Nobody needed to tell Jesus what was in the heart of man because Jesus knew the hearts of man. This is, this is uh, somewhat uh, frightening that Jesus knows what's in the heart of all people. That our thoughts and motives and our intentions are laid bare before him and exposed Even if we're attempting on the outside to do something that seems good and worthwhile, Jesus understands the motives behind it. I mean, wouldn't it seem like the Pharisees, this is a worthwhile thing. Here's Dropsy Dan, Jesus. We brought him here to meet you. And Jesus understands exactly what's going on. He asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he knows the Pharisees and lawyers think it's not. That their man-made regulations say it's more important to keep principle than to love and show compassion to people. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says do not heal on the Sabbath. That's something that was added by these other uh, Pharisees and scribes, etc. They were more concerned about their regulations than they were about compassion. They saw only mandates and missed mercy. People were not a prior to them. In fact, the dropsy man was just a means to an end for him. So Jesus asked the question, responding to their intentions is it lawful to heal on the sabbath or not and they remain totally silent why because no answer there is going to be a good one for them um the, it's it's called a uh, loaded question like the question have you stopped beating your wife there's no good answer to that question except i have never ever beaten my wife because if you say no You're wrong. If you say yes, you're wrong. So how are these guys going to be wrong if they say yes or no? Well, when Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If they say yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They're basically giving Jesus the go-ahead to break their man-made traditions, and all of that would then be in jeopardy to their followers. See, they have set this house of cards of all these regulations that we must keep in order to be religious. The person who keeps it the best is the most religious, not keeps God's word the best, you understand the difference, but keeps our man-made traditions the best and has a trappings or a pretense of religion, then that person is the most holy before the Lord. And if I now say, Pharisee, ruler of the Pharisee, say to Jesus, yes, it's lawful, and Jesus goes, then all my followers would be saying, hey, whatever happened to your regulations? So they cannot answer yes. All their teaching would fall apart. They cannot answer no, Because then they are exposed as the hypocrites they are. Then why did you bring the dropsy man here? And if they answer no, their heartlessness would be exposed. No, don't help dropsy Dan. He could die later today. But that's not as important as obeying our man-made regulations. See the difference here? They're choosing principle over people. So all they could do is remain silent. And all of a sudden, the trap that they set for Jesus has been turned around, and they look like idiots. And Jesus, the wise and all-knowing Savior, of course, takes complete control of the situation, taking the man. And I like the word take there. It, it implies a touch or a, a healing hold. Take, it really could say take to himself. It may be that he embraced him. The Bible doesn't say that, but it, that word could imply that. But it, it, is, it does imply a physical grasp or touch or coming near to. He healed him and sent him away. See, the guy wasn't there for the party. The guy wasn't there for the meal. The guy was there for the trap. And then Jesus turns again to these men who, and perhaps women who had learned nothing from the previous Sabbath healings and teaching and, and, and says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And again, they could not reply. Now, before we get to that question, an ironic thing to me is this, that that healing is not the climax of the story follow what i'm saying jesus just healed as, as i said cancer uh, organ failure he just instantaneously healed a guy and that's like the holy spirit doesn't even really focus on that part for us in the word it just happens it's just an aside jesus jesus extreme power over sin and its effects is just it's just kind of he healed him and he sent him away and I just kind of laugh at that. I do. Because we just, we just take for granted. Jesus just Jesus conquered that, and now he's going to turn his attention to these hypocritical Pharisees. Whatever it was, the man had been healed. Which of you has an, uh, a son or an ox? As I said when I read it, it could imply that, that some texts say it's a, it's a, it's a uh, donkey. But either way, something that is cherished to you falls in a well. Would you rescue it? And again, they can't say yes or no. Of course the answer they would, they, would, they would rescue. Jesus begins again to explain to them what is meant by the Sabbath. And of course we believe that the Sabbath now has, tradi- has, has uh, transitioned to the Lord's Day. And we've gone over that before. Because of the resurrection of Christ and the church now meeting on the Lord's Day, we don't believe the Sabbath regulations are still in place. But we do believe that this is a day for worship and for rest. It is not a day for naps. But it is a day for resting in God, which symbolizes the rest that is yet to come, the eternal and heavenly rest, the happy land where saints will sing forever and be with God around his throne, as we've sung about. What the Sabbath is for, and Jesus said this before, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is a gift for us to use and to enjoy. And the works that should be done on the Lord's day, our works of piety, what we're doing now. Works of necessity, right? Works of mercy. And, and all of us have to, we just did a series on this last year, so I'm not going to speak on this a lot here, but all of us have to decide, well, what is it that, that is necessary? What is it that is, is unnecessary, right? Is it necessary uh, for a doctor to work? Is it necessary for a clown to work? Right? We have to make those decisions, what is necessary for us? But, but the bottom line is that we are all guilty, as J.C. Ryle has said, of not using the Lord's day as it has been intended. Sunday has become a day to do what we want to do instead of doing what God wants us to do, or specifically what others need done. What, what Jesus is saying is this is a day for mercy. He heals the guy. If you had your son or donkey fall in a ditch, you'd immediately rescue him and show mercy on them. It is perfectly appropriate for us to show mercy to this guy. They chose principle over people, third thing. They chose trapping over teaching. They, sh- they chose principle over people. And third, they chose honor over humility. Now, transitioning, the dropsy guy leaves, and Jesus, at the same feast, this is all, all the way down to verse 24, is the same dinner meal. He tells a parable to the people who are invited. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is going to just take over. and He's going to start telling a story to the people who are invited Because he watched them when they came into the party, and he noticed what they did, and they jockeyed for an honorable position. You can almost imagine, and again, we say that no action goes unnoticed by the Lord. In fact, Luke 11, verse 43, Jesus already spoke to the Pharisees about choosing the seats of honor at the marketplace and in the synagogue. The emphasis here is going to be on the pride of people, people that desire the best, a place of honor. You ever sat at a wedding reception and said, Why are we way back here? Right? Or, or you ever been given seats to a baseball game and you're in the bleacher? Wait, wait a minute. We deserve to be down there. Uh, it's like going to a party and, and you're kind of in a, in, a, in a room and you know everybody's going to be seated soon. And so you. You know that the meal is about to be announced, right? It's almost, all right, let's find our seats. You know that announcement is coming. So you kind of elbow up against the, the person who you think is one of the most important people there so that when it's time to sit down, maybe it'll work out that you get to sit right with that person. We've done those type of things before. I remember sitting, we used to uh, go to Christian camp with all kinds of other uh, pastors. And I can remember, you know, I can remember pastors being very guilty of this. Oh, there's the speaker coming in right let's let's kind of hover around the front of the auditorium maybe we'll get a chance to to have an ice cream with the speaker or uh, or the I remember sitting at a table with other youth pastors, and here I am just as nobody youth pastor. So we're in the middle of this conversation. Meanwhile, everybody's kind of looking over the top of me while we're talking. Oh, yeah, that's real interesting because we want to see if somebody more important is coming in because I need to have more honor. I need to be noticed. I need to be connected with the people that appear to be great. And the ironic part about this is the people are at a party with the Son of God, and they don't want to have anything to do with Him but they want the position of honor at the table. It would be, it would be a U type position with the, with the host probably sitting at the at the bottom of the U, if you can imagine it. They would be sitting on couches, not at tables and leaning in maybe towards the center or reclining. So, I mean, here would be a great place. Here would be a great place, right? What did James and John's mother say to them when they get to the kingdom? Can one sit on your right and one sit on your left? I mean, here's where you want to be. You don't want to be way down here at this end of the U. Hey, what are you talking about down there? You're way out of position. So Jesus watches these people come in, and they're elbowing for these seats. This is not a mismanners etiquette lesson. Okay, Jesus is not instructing us what to do when we go to a dinner party. He's expressing something that must be true in people who desire to follow him, and that is a humility. Jesus tells kind of a funny, funny little story here. If somebody invites you to a feast, just paraphrase this, if somebody invites you to a wedding feast, don't go for that position of honor, because what happens when somebody more important than you comes in And then they got to tap you on the shoulder and say, "Uh, excuse me, sir, uh, you're sitting in Dignitary A seat. Oh, excuse me. And then you're shamed and embarrassed. And well, where should I sit? Well, there's a seat way down in that other section. And now you're embarrassed. Jesus says, much better for you to start way down there and for someone to say to you, hey, what, what are you doing down there? Jim, get up here. Take this seat. Right? Which way would you rather have it? That's, kind of, that's exactly what Jesus says. Don't be this guy, be that guy. And it's not because, well, if I, if I choose to be humble, maybe they'll really notice my humility, and then they'll, then they'll put me in this proper position. It is to demonstrate that people, uh, that, that, that our pride doesn't rule our lives and decisions making. And the reason for this is Jesus is the prime example of this, isn't he? I mean, here Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus, I I just summarized Jesus' story in verses 8 to uh, 11. Here's how he says it. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he invited you both will come up and say to you, give your place to this person. And you will begin with shame to go to the lowest place. This is I just expresses, but when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place so you can say, friend, move up here, and you'll be honored in the presence of everyone. And all of this is pointing to the principle of verse 11. Whoever humbles him, exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How often we are guilty of sinful pride. When we seek to be first, when we must be noticed, Right? When our service goes unnoticed and we become uh, discouraged because no one saw how we cleaned the church, or no one noticed our particular dessert at the potluck, or when we rejoice at a rival's misfortune, someone who is striving for the same thing as us, and they fail, and we rejoice at that, or when we desire to be honored for things, or when we hurt someone, or or step on someone who is striving for the same thing as us. This can happen in all sorts of places. It's terrible when it happens within the church. So Jesus gives this funny parable about being put in your place. What a great storyteller. It's a really funny thing he says. But the principle is this, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, I kind of summarize it this way. Before honor comes humility, and there is only disgrace for the proud. Before honor comes humility, and there is only disgrace for the proud. 1 Peter 5.5, James 4.6 both say the same thing, which are quotations from Proverbs 3.34, which say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 29.23 says that also. And Jesus is the greatest expression of this. It, it's Philippians 2 is really a parabola. It's, it's a complete circle where he is exalted, and then he humbles himself to the point of death, and then Christ, God exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name. Let me make two final comments about this, and this is where the application will, will strike, okay? I would say that the reason, the whole reason that these Pharisees and why many other people find themselves on the outside of Christ's kingdom looking in is because of their pride. I think pride initiated this, party. I think pride initiated this trapping of Jesus. Pride was demonstrated in the way they took their seats. Pride is all over versus one to four. They're so proud they don't even want to help the man with the dropsy. They just want to use him. They're so proud they don't want to listen to Jesus's teaching. They just want to trap him. They're so proud they want to sit in the fine places. They don't want to be eliminated and put in a back seat. So let's make these two great points of what Jesus is saying here in the principle in verse 11. First of all, humility is the only way into Christ's kingdom. Humility is the only way into Christ's kingdom. The greatest exaltation that any human being can experience will be the exaltation of a being allowed entrance into heaven. There's no greater there's no greater exaltation for a person. You think of these politicians who are striving and working, and now we're seeing already 2020 elections start to, to, to come to the forefront of the news, and people again are jockeying for this position, and these people will step on anybody to get what they want and get to the top and rise to the top, and eventually, unless they have responded to Christ and to his teaching, they'll be eternally lost. The only way to find the greatest exaltation that can come for a human being is by humbling ourselves, and we come to Christ humbly. We admit our sin. We've talked about this for weeks. It is through repentance and the admittance of our need of Jesus that we come into the kingdom. Remember the narrow door, and it kind of implied even a bending down? It is the humble and contrite in heart that God will uh, embrace The Pharisees just could not do that because of their pride. And some people, even today, still refuse to admit their sin because they're they're too proud. They want to hold on to their life at all costs. They're too proud to admit they have a need, too proud to admit they are sinners, and they will not come to Christ when humility is the only way into Christ's kingdom. And then second, humility is also the mark of all those Who are part of Christ's kingdom. So it's the way in. And then it marks everybody who is truly in. It's not only the way to be saved. It's the way saved people act. Others come first. People are a priority. I don't care if anybody notices me. I'll do the dirty, lowly acts of service. And it doesn't matter if I'm praised or noticed. If If humility does not mark our lives, have we have we truly been saved? If if I mean, pride is an issue for everyone. All sins are going to be an issue for everyone. But but if if pride is a constant mark of our lives, there must be some self examination that happens. So avoid. Let's avoid these these uh, these negative things. Let's let's choose to listen to Jesus's teaching. Let's choose to care and show mercy to other people, and let's choose to be humble. That is the mark of those in the kingdom of Christ let's pray. Father, we thank you today for again this opportunity to look at the life of Christ and to see his his, uh, his wisdom, his compassion, his humor his uh, his important principles here and Father may each one of us uh strive to be as far away from the actions of these pharisees as possible father let us let us not debate your word but just truly accept it let us not miss opportunities for showing mercy to others let us put people first father let us be humble. Perhaps there's one in here who has never humbled themselves to the point of salvation and therefore will never be exalted. To hold on to our own pride will only lead to a future and eternal humbling. Father, we know that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We know that you hate pride. And so help us as believers to be as Jesus, marked by this humility, his entire incarnation is described as that he humbled himself and did so that he might rescue rebellious sinners. So let humility mark our lives. May we, in lowly service to others, make our mark that way for the kingdom of Christ. Father, would you work in the hearts of anyone in here who may truly not be saved. May they finally release their pride and humble themselves and repent of their sins and trust Christ. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.